My name is Paola Gaeta and I'm a professor of international law at the Graduate Institute of International and Development Studies in Geneva, Switzerland. This lecture will deal with the prosecution and punishment of individuals responsible of international crimes. And I will focus uh, briefly on the role of national jurisdiction, then providing some examples of international criminal courts and tribunals which have been established for the prosecution of these crimes, and focusing then in particular on the structure and functioning of the International Criminal Court, which has been established in 1998 with the Rome Statute. Let me start then with the role of national jurisdiction for the repression of international crimes. It is clear that national jurisdictions are the main relevant fora for the prosecution of crimes in general, since the exercise of criminal jurisdiction is one of the attribution of state and state sovereignty. Uh, the relevant issue when it comes to the jurisdiction of states over crimes uh, relates to the so-called connecting factors because the relevant municipal law should establish the connection that exists between the jurisdiction of own courts and the relevant crimes. And the connecting factor is usually territoriality, namely a state would exercise jurisdiction uh, when the crime is committed in his, on its territory, but other connecting factors are the nationality of the offender, therefore the relevant state may decide to exercise jurisdiction over acts carried out abroad by one of its, um, of its nationals. This is the so-called active nationality principle, but it may also decide to acquire jurisdiction over acts carried out abroad by foreigners against own nationals. This would be the principle of passive nationality. Uh, another important connecting factor, although a bit controversial, is the principle of universal jurisdiction in criminal matters, which would confer jurisdiction uh, on the courts of a given state, absent any of the aforementioned, namely when the crime has been committed abroad by a foreigner against a foreigner, and therefore there is no connecting factor at the moment of the commission of the offence which would link the crime to the relevant court of the state. Now, when it comes to the prosecution and punishment of crimes under international law, National jurisdiction may be obliged in some circumstances to exercise criminal jurisdiction based on a treaty to which the relevant state is a party. In such cases, as we know, the treaty may provide for the obligation of the relevant state not only to pass the relevant criminal legislation to make the crime punishable at the international level, this is, for instance, the case of the crime of genocide or war crimes consisting in grave breaches of the Geneva Conventions and First Additional Protocol, but also the case for torture and forced disappearances and so on. Um, but in the treaty may also oblige the relevant state party to actually exercise jurisdiction in terms of prosecuting the person responsible for the crime. And uh, the treaty may go so far as to uh, obliging the state to, to uh, establish certain connecting factors 
between the crime and the courts of the state in order to have as much as possible the possibility to prosecute crimes defined in the treaty under any possible connecting grounds. To make it clear, the Torture Convention, for instance, provides that states not only have to criminalize torture in their domestic legal systems, but also they have to empower their own courts with jurisdiction based on connecting factors such as the territoriality, where torture has been committed, the nationality requirement, so torture should be punishable if committed by a national abroad, in, even if they so desire if torture is committed abroad against one of the nationals, but also on the basis of universal jurisdiction, if the accused is found on the territory of the state and such a state does not extradite the person to another state. This would be the principle of universal jurisdiction made conditional upon the so-called rule audere a judicare, how or you extradite or you prosecute. It is a fact, however, that in the field of prosecuting international crimes, national jurisdictions are not very much active for a variety of reasons. Sometimes because they do not want to prosecute crimes committed by own nationals. They may be servicemen fighting an armed conflict abroad and therefore charges concerning war crimes against own nationals may be politically difficult, but also there may be reasons of committee. Many reasons may explain the fact that states do not really do much cases concerning the prosecution of international crimes. Things have changed in recent decades, in particular after the end of the Cold War and the establishment of the International Criminal Tribunal for the former Yugoslavian Rwanda, as well as the establishment of the International Criminal Court, because this has been having some sort of triggering effect, making the national judges and the national ju judiciary more aware of the need to, to bring the perpetrators of these serious crimes to justice, even through their own courts. Having said so, it is a fact that states might have also the prerogative of establishing international judicial bodies for the prosecution and punishment of international crimes. And this has been done, for instance, after the Second World War with the establishment of the Nuremberg and Tokyo Tribunals, but also in the 90s, with the establishment of the International Criminal Tribunal for the former Yugoslavia in Rwanda by the Security Council, with the establishment of the International Criminal Court with the Rome Statute, with the establishment of hybrid courts and tribunals, such as the Special Court for Sierra Leone, and so on and so forth. When these instruments, uh, when these international institutions are created, when these international criminal courts and tribunals are created, they are, of course, bound by the relevant statute uh, that regulate their functioning, but also these statutes, they would establish the, 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 the scope of the jurisdiction of uh, the relevant tribunal, as well as establishing certain principles of criminal procedures that shall be followed, and so on and so forth. What is important and interesting to be underlined is that in most cases, these international criminal tribunals have been established not necessarily with the consent 
of the state uh, on the territory of which the crimes had been committed um, in a variety of instances. So for instance, the Nuremberg and Tokyo tribunals were established without the direct consent of Germany and Japan, since these tribunals were the expression of the authority of the occupying powers. So these, tri these tribunals were created without the direct consent uh, of Germany or Japan. Similarly, the International Criminal Tribunal for the former Yugoslavia and the National Criminal Tribunal for Rwanda have been established by the Security Council to deal with crimes committed in the territory of the former Yugoslavia and crimes committed in Rwanda without the direct consent of the, former of the states of the former Yugoslavia or the direct consent of Rwanda. In this case, the consent was in a way indirect since, uh, since these countries were parties uh, to the United Nations Charters, they had accepted uh, the powers of the Security Council under Chapter 7, and therefore, the argument so goes, uh, indirectly they had accepted the power of the Security Council to establish these tribunals in the exercise of its powers to maintain peace and security. However, it is a fact that they didn't consent directly to the establishment of these tribunals. When it comes to the International Criminal Court, as we know, this court has been established by way of an international treaty, differently from the International Criminal Tribunal for the former Yugoslavia and Rwanda. And the International Criminal Court could also acquire jurisdiction over crimes committed in a particular situation without the consent of the relevant state. Uh, the attempt to uh, establish the principle of the direct consent of the relevant state was, uh, was made, but uh, did not go through the Rome Conference. I will speak about, a bit more about this uh, when uh, we will present now the jurisdictional scheme of the International Criminal Court. So let me start with the fact that First of all, the International Criminal Court has been established with jurisdiction over the crimes listed in Article 5 of the Rome Statute and defined, defined further in the relevant provisions of the Rome Statute as well as in the elements of crimes. And these crimes are genocide, crimes against humanity, war crimes and also aggression. Uh, there are also another category of offences that are under the jurisdiction of the International Criminal Court, and this is, these are the so-called Article 70 offences, namely the cases that uh, relate to the um, uh, offences committed by individuals against the administration of justice and contempt of court. Uh, but keeping our, focusing our attention on the crimes defined uh, in the Rome Statute as crimes under international law, so setting aside uh, the Article 70 offences, uh, it is important uh, that we underline that uh, these uh, crimes and the criminal responsibility under the Rome Statute is confined to natural persons. So in only individuals, uh, natural persons, uh, can be facing uh, criminal proceedings at the International Criminal Court. This excludes so-called legal entities, uh, corporations and similar legal entities that might have legal personality uh, within the municipal law, but they are, and they may be subject to national criminal 
jurisdiction in some countries, but they are not uh, subject to the jurisdiction of the International uh, Criminal Court. It is also important to underline that the, um, the Rome Statute precludes the court to exercise a jurisdiction over any person who was under the age of 18 at the time of the alleged commission of the crime. And this is a principle that is enshrined in Article 26 of the Rome Statute. Um, also, it is important to, to underline that although the prosecutorial policy may be directed towards those most responsible uh, for uh, crimes under the jurisdiction of the court, namely towards those uh, um, having much power within the structure of a state or directing the policy of a non-state armed group, still the possibility remains for the court to prosecute also crimes committed by so-called little fish, namely um, foot soldiers or any other person not having great authority in the structure of a state or in the structure of a non-state armed group. Uh, the only exception is the crime of aggression, since uh, the crime of aggression by definition uh, requires uh, in the Rome Statute, Article 8 bis, that the act of aggression that might amount to a crime of aggression is committed by a person who has an effective control or may direct the political and military activity of a state. This implies that only those having seniority in the structure of the state could, be commit, could commit the crime of aggression. Coming to the uh, temporal jurisdiction of the International Criminal Court, well shall, we, we shall distinguish between the general clause of temporal jurisdiction and the specific clause of temporal jurisdiction. What I mean by that? I mean that the Rome Statute uh, has entered into force at the international level uh, in 2002. And the jurisdiction of the, the International Criminal Court cannot go in, uh, cannot retroactively uh, be asserted. So the court does not have jurisdiction of any crime committed after, before the entry into force of the Rome Statute at the international level. And this is the general clause of the temporal jurisdiction of the court. However, it is possible that the ratification uh, by a state of, a Rome, of the Rome Statute may occur after uh, the date of the entry into force of the Rome Statute at international level, so after 2002. So in such a case, the Rome Statute provides in Article 11, paragraph 2, that if a state becomes a state party to the Rome Statute after the end of the force of the Statute, the court may exercise its jurisdiction only with respect to crimes that were committed after the entry into force of the Statute for the newly ratifying state. Uh, unless such a state has decided, by virtue of a specific declaration, to allow the court to exercise jurisdiction also over crimes committed before ratifying the statute for such a state. It's also important to underline that uh, states, um, when they accept the jurisdiction of the court by ratifying the Rome Statute, they implicitly accept the possibility for the court to exercise its jurisdiction over any crime 
defined in the Rome Statute uh, and the elements of crimes committed in their territory or by one of their nationals outside their own territory. This is a disjunctive clause that would allow the court to exercise jurisdiction over crimes committed by nationals of a state party abroad or committed by foreigners acting in the territory of a state party. And this clause has been much contested by states, not parties to the Rome Statute, because they argue that by allowing the court to exercise jurisdiction over their nationals who are accused of having committed crimes in the territory of, an, of a state party, then without the state of nationality having accepted the jurisdiction of the court, this would run counter the principle whereby a treaty cannot create obligations upon non-state parties. This objection, however, can be, uh, uh, can be um, overcome by considering that uh, whenever it comes to crimes, uh, if a foreigner commit a crime, commits a crime in the territory of a state, the territory of such a state does have jurisdiction over such an individual absent the consent of the state of nationality. And therefore, it is possible for the same state, if it so wishes, to delegate its own criminal jurisdiction to international criminal court to carry out uh, criminal proceedings on crimes committed on its territory. This is how the objection uh, is usually overcome. Importantly, concerning the requirement whereby the jurisdiction of the court exists whenever a crime is committed in the territory of a state party, even committed by nationals of non-state parties, includes also the possibility for the court to acquire jurisdiction over so-called transboundary offenses, namely there may be cases where a crime is initiated in the territory of a state not party to the Rome Statute and committed by nationals of the state not party to the Rome Statute, but the crime initiated in such a state would continue in the territory of a neighboring country that is a state party to the Rome Statute. In such a case, the court has asserted to have jurisdiction because part of the crime, although initiated in the state not party to the statute and by nationals of the state not party to the statute, has continued in the territory of a state party to the statute. In this case, the International Criminal Court has asserted jurisdiction over the crimes committed, in part, in the territory of a state party. It is also important to underline that under the Rome Statutes, it is not always necessary that the court could exercise jurisdiction only if the crime is committed in the territory of a state party or by a national of a state party. There are certain situations where the lack of any of the two does not prevent the court from exercising its criminal jurisdiction. This is the case when the, the court, the jurisdiction of the court, has been triggered by the UN Security Council acting under Chapter 7 of the United Nations Charter. In such a case, the Rome Statute does not make the jurisdiction of the court conditional upon the acceptance of the Rome Statute by the state where the crime has been committed or by the state of the nationality of the accused. So the Security Council is free 
to trigger the jurisdiction of the court over any situation whatsoever occurring wherever in the world, independently of whether the state in question where the crimes are committed or the state of nationalities of the offenders have accepted the jurisdiction of the court. And that this has occurred in a couple of times, so the Security Council has indeed triggered the jurisdiction of the court in two situations where the crimes were, had been committed in the territory and by national of uh, states not party to the Rome Statute. The first time uh, this has occurred is when the Security Council has triggered the jurisdiction of the court over the crimes committed in the region of Darfur, Sudan, with Sudan not being a party to the Rome Statute, and the second time when the Security Council has triggered the jurisdiction of the court for crimes committed in the territory of Libya in the aftermath of the revolution, without Libya being a party to the Rome Statute. Since then, up to now, we have not had any other case of referrals or triggering of the jurisdiction of the court on the part of the Security Council. There are other two ways, however, for the court to be triggered. Not only the Security Council can ask the court to start investigating certain crimes committed in a particular situation, but there are also two other mechanisms to trigger the jurisdiction of the court. One of those is the fact that any state party to the Rome Statute has the possibility to trigger the jurisdiction of the court, to demand the court to investigate uh, crimes committed in a particular situation. Um, this has been done on a variety of occasions. Uh, in most of the cases, the triggering of the jurisdiction of the court by a state party was a so-called self-referral. With this term, one describes the situation whereby it is the state party to the Rome Statute on whose territory the crimes are committed that triggers the jurisdiction of the court. So it's the very same state whose nationals are committing crimes and on, on its own territory. Referrals by a state party, however, may be made also by the states uh, who are not concerned with the situation where the crimes are committed. They have the possibility to refer a situation occurring in the territory of another state party. And this has been done, for instance, in the case of the referral of the situation in Venezuela, but also in the situation occurring in Ukraine. Another way to trigger the jurisdiction of the International Criminal Court is by the prosecutor of the International Criminal Court. Uh, this would be the action proprio motu of the prosecutor. Simply the prosecutor decides that a particular situation is so serious that it deserves to be investigated without being triggered by the Security Council or by a state party. Uh, however, the prosecutor, uh, if he or she decides uh, to uh, activate its uh, discretionary power to open criminal investigation by its own initiative, its own initiative, then it needs to uh, obtain the necessary authorization from the pre-trial chamber. The pre-trial chamber, therefore, could uh, decide uh, that the prosecutor does not have such an authorization. In such a case, the prosecutor cannot continue with the criminal investigation. And that this form of authorization from the pre-trial chamber is a sort of control 
that the judiciary exercises over uh, decisions, autonomous decisions of uh, the prosecutor. It is also finally important to underline that the International Criminal Court uh, has a particular relationship with national jurisdictions uh, because uh, when it has been established, it has been established uh, in a way uh, not to, to prevent national jurisdiction from exercising uh, their jurisdiction over these crimes, but on the contrary, on the premise that it's the duty of such states to prosecute and punish crimes under international law. So the system of the International Criminal Court has been envisaged with the International Criminal Court being complementary to national criminal jurisdiction. This means, and this is the way uh, the principle has been uh, described, uh, this means that the International Criminal Court would step in in a particular case uh, only to the extent that uh, the national criminal jurisdiction uh, does not uh, carry out criminal proceedings. So only facing the fact that the relevant national state is unwilling or unable to carry out criminal proceedings. Therefore, the mechanism of the International Criminal Court has been conceived as complementary to national jurisdiction in, 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 uh, in um, recognizing the primary duty of uh, states to carry out uh, criminal proceedings in the field of international criminal justice. Uh, this principle was exactly the opposite of the principle regulating the relationship between the International Criminal Tribunal for the former Yugoslavia and Rwanda vis-à-vis -vis national jurisdiction. These two tribunals, these two ad hoc tribunals, had primacy over national jurisdiction, meaning that they could have decided to advocate to, to own criminal proceedings any case which had been initiated at the national level in, in, um, when certain conditions, of course, were met. So the, the, the idea, uh, on the contrary, for the International Criminal Court has been to take the opposite approach and to make the International Criminal Court complementary to national criminal jurisdiction. The principle of complementarity is spelled out in detail through the so-called admissibility procedure in Article 17 of the Rome Statute that essentially says that whenever the same case is investigated or prosecuted or has been tried at the national level, then the International Criminal Court should not step in unless the relevant criminal proceedings demonstrate that the relevant state is unable or unwilling to carry out the criminal proceedings in a generally manner. This provision is quite a complex one and has been interpreted by the International Criminal Court in a string of cases. Essentially, the International Criminal Court has, the, has stated that the principle would be applicable only when the state is prosecuting or investigating the same case that is pending before the International Criminal Court. If it is not prosecuting and investigating the same case, then the principle of complementarity does not apply because, in a way, 
the court would consider that the state is not acting on the same case and therefore there is no conflict of jurisdiction between the national and the international level. In order to identify whether or not the national case is the same case which is pending before the court, uh, the International Criminal Court has used uh, uh, a, a sameness requirement, namely saying that the case is the same case when it relates to the same person, first of all, and essentially relates to the same facts that are subject to investigation or criminal proceedings. If this is not the case, because the person is not the same, or the national criminal investigations or proceedings do not pertain to the same facts investigated or proceeded at the International Criminal Court, the case is not the same, and therefore the International Criminal Court could continue with its investigations and criminal proceedings. If, on the contrary, the case is the same, because it concerns the same person and the same, essentially the same facts, then the court is required to establish whether or not the relevant national jurisdiction is able or willing to carry out the criminal proceedings and investigations in a generally manner. If this is not the case, then the court can continue with international investigations and prosecutions. If, on the contrary, the state is able and willing to prosecute the case, then the court shall stop its criminal investigation and prosecution and shall defer to the national criminal proceedings. Let me provide you some examples of the jurisprudence of the court on this matter. For instance, when it came, when it came to the Simon Gapko case uh, concerning Ivory Coast, um, Simon Gapko was prosecuted at the national level with the charges concerning, among others, economic crimes. So it was easy for the International Criminal Court to say that the case which was under investigation at the International Criminal Court could continue because it was not the same case. It concerned the same person but did not concern the same facts because at the domestic level the prosecution was about facts relating to including economic crimes while at the International Criminal Court, uh, the facts uh, under investigations related to commissions of crimes against humanity. So in such a case, uh, the court could conclude to say that there was no conflict of jurisdiction uh, on, the, on the case because it was not the same case. And therefore, the two proceedings could continue in parallel and the principle of complementarity was not applicable. Um, however, uh, another case uh, where this uh, conflict uh, was found uh, concerns a, situation, the, a, a case coming from the Libyan situation where um, the accused, Al-Senussi, were subject to criminal prosecution and investigations in Libya and at the same time he was subject to criminal investigations and prosecution at the International Criminal Court for facts which were relating to the uh, armed conflict unfolding in Libya in 2011. And in such a case, uh, the court found that not only the accused was the same person, Al-Senussi, 
uh, and it was the same person under investigation at the national level and under investigation at the International Criminal Court. But the courts also found that the investigations at the national level concerned essentially the same facts as the prosecution and investigations at the International Criminal Court. So the court concluded that this was the same case, which was under investigation and prosecution at the international and national level. So there was a positive conflict of jurisdiction that had to be regulated by the principle of complementarity. And the principle of complementarity would say that one has to establish whether or not the state is prosecuting and is doing it uh, with uh, ability and willingness uh, to carry out genuinely the criminal proceedings. And the International Criminal Court found in that case that the national investigating authorities were in fact prosecuting the case and they were doing in a way that demonstrated that they were genuinely able to carry out the proceedings and had the ability to do so. Therefore, the court considered that it should have relinquished the Alsenussi case to the national jurisdiction and accepted the view that the case was not admissible before the International Criminal Court. This decision has been criticized by many commentators because many had claimed that the national criminal proceedings in Libya were conducted in a manner that was not in conformity with the fair trial standards and also that the detention conditions of the accused were not respecting human rights and also that the uh, accused could face death penalty if found responsible for crimes under Libyan criminal jurisdiction. And therefore, many commentators have claimed that the International Criminal Court should have, on the contrary, declared the case admissible before the International Criminal Court uh, on, on these grounds. Uh, but the International Criminal Court has clarified that the International Criminal Court is not a human rights court and therefore it has only to establish that the national competent criminal jurisdiction is carrying out proceedings over the same case and is doing so in a way that shows that it is generally able to carry out the criminal proceedings and has the willing, willingness to do so. And human rights standards do not necessarily would come into the picture.